Testing, testing, one, two, three. All right, good morning, everybody. Settle in and all this stuff. So continuing the discussion on conflict, that conflict is of a spiritual nature and that um, a lot of the factors of this include spiritual factors, right? Like that Satan is trying to influence us in how we deal with things and stress us in ways that cause us to act outside of God's character. And these are the things that we've been discussing. So, yeah, conflicts is of a spiritual nature. The enemy tries to influence in that and with specific tactics, right? Trying to incite things like fear for us to take hold of. Things like uh, deception. Things like selfish ambition. All those things that are concerned with self and not concerned with the glory of God and what we're trying to accomplish. And in this, conflict is one of those things where it can be intimidating, right? People don't generally don't like conflict. It's intimidating. But we are not to be intimidated by conflict because we're not concerned about those things. We're not worried about those things. And fear is not from God, right? The scripture says that true love, which is from God, expels all fear. And that is what we're trying to go for here, to not be fearful. We don't need to, because of this, we don't need to sensationalize conflict, right? It's not a big deal to us because there's really nothing at stake. We're secure in Christ. We're secure in who we are before God. And we understand that nothing is unable to be fixed by Christ, that things are going to work out, and especially if we're pursuing that. Um, so we shouldn't sensationalize conflict, even when it's with evil itself, but we should understand it. And so we're continuing to seek that, continuing to learn how we're called to respond within that conflict so that we can not have conflict according to how evil, how Satan would have us be in conflict with each other to cause division in all these things, but be in conflict in a way that God approves of, that's seeking harmony, that's seeking all these things where it starts borderlining on not even conflict anymore. So, we can talk about staying within God's commandments during that, and that's good. We can talk about um, working on not violating God's character, and that's good. We can complete all the required study and reading, and that's good. But a person who's becoming godly in these ways yearns to go beyond the minimum standard, right? Beyond the you know, do nots of scripture, beyond just wronging people, but we want to do what's right. We want to be what's righteous to the full extent of God's character. Godly is to be in the likeness of God, right? And that's what we're going for. God didn't give us, God didn't give us 20 bucks for pizza, right? He gave us the eternal bread of life. He didn't give the minimum standard that we get, you know, easily have dinner for the night or whatever, but he gave us something that would satisfy all those needs and fulfill that in a more complete sense. And we want to take after God's character. His sacrifices of Jesus was so profound that it altered the entire world. Not even just believers, but they don't want to admit it, but it altered every non-believer in America. You know, they can't help it because Christ's influence on the world was so profound. And it's because God held nothing back. 
nobody was excluded from his offer of new life. Um, no enemy, and everybody feels the effect of that, even if they deny receiving that gift. No enemy would stop him from resolving our spiritual conflict from God. No enemy can stop that. And the power in that is immense. God acted on his own character to the fullest extent of it. But the impact of this act doesn't come from a single dimension of greatness, right? It doesn't come from just love or just forgiveness. It comes from a comprehensive array of God's character. That's why it's so profound. It comes from the full spectrum, you know, the whole rainbow of God's character. It's not just, it's not, you know, just red or just purple. It's red, orange, blue, even the lesser known indigo, and violet, the dumb name for purple, you know? It's like, it's all of it, whether we like it or not. And so that's what we want to try to look at, and that's what we want to try to go for. It's profound because God uses total love while stressing responsibility at the same time, offers total security while demanding vigilance in our security. He gives total victory while still allowing us to mourn the lost. So when we encounter, encounter conflict, we need not just be blameless, but also godly. By acting in God's character, following in Jesus' direction, and engaging conflict with a steady sword. As far as God's character is concerned, we need to know the character of God. We can find that most clearly and concisely in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul outlines the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I always prefer the non-MLT translation of that because I love how it says, against these things there is no law. It's medieval and cool. And it gets the point across. Against those things there is no law. When we operate within that character, there is no breaking the law. God gets passionate over one attribute sometimes of himself, and that may come in strong and heavy, and people find offense in that, like his anger or his jealousy even his love. Nobody wants to take an issue of that when his love comes in in full force and he pushes off his judgment or whatever it is. Um, but he doesn't disregard his full personality ever, even in those things, right? He may be suppressing a certain part of that for later on or for a different time or whatever, but he doesn't blot out any of those traits. He has a plan for each of them, for legacy, for example, in his people. Things, God plays the long game. Israel is a good example of that, how God over and over gives them consequences, but he has a greater plan that he even hints at in the moment. That's, you know, 90% of prophecy, right, is a condemnation of what's going on, but then there's a glimmer of hope in there, too. The harshness of God, the, the holiness of God, but also the love and the forgiveness and the the peace of God, too. So anyway, all those things are all present in God's character, and that's what we're going for in understanding that. For our conflict, let's call it 
just for simple definition, let's call it disagreement between two people. How can we possibly show all the parts of the fruit of the Spirit, all the parts of the personality of God? Well, we just go through them, and we have to look at them, right, and see as we go through think about how it is that we do those things, you know, especially in that moment of conflict where you're generally, like, self-focused, right? It's one of those points where we're weak. It's easy to be on the defense and not thinking about how we're going to give all of ourself, all parts of ourself. So going through those fruit of the Spirit, love, God's unconditional love. Our love is not altered or threatened by a conflict, right? Just like God's isn't. He offers his love and asks that we behave a certain way, but he is never going to permanently revoke that. He will never permanently revoke his spirit. Joy, appreciation of what's happening, growth, seeking the best way to serve God, like taking joy in all these things, even in a hard time, and appreciating what's happening in conflict. We can take joy in the growth of that. We can take, take joy in seeking the best way to serve God together, in meeting of the minds if we come together in such a way that's not from evil motivations, but from the godly character that we're called to be. Peace is the next in line. Without fear in an individual or a sense of security within that conflict. A lot of people get insecure and get defensive, like I said, in conflict, but we're talking about peace, right? Shoes that are fit with the gospel of peace, like we take a stance in conflict and seek harmony between those people. Is that present? Patience, really listening to the other side, not just wanting to get your two cents in, right? Having patience to, to see the validity in the other person's argument in your disagreement versus seeking to interrupt versus focusing on the now and what you're going to say next, you know? Are you constantly planning counter-arguments or are you taking the time to listen to what's being said and then waiting for your your time to discuss kindness. I have a little quote that someone said that I thought was interesting. They said, divine kindness is the spirit-produced goodness which meets the need and avoids human harshness. And then they said, quote, we have no term that quite carries this notion of kind and good. In English, we don't really have a, a term that adequately carries what they're talking about in scripture when they say kindness as the fruit of the spirit. But anyway, it's divine kindness, spirit produced goodness, which meets the needs and avoids human harshness. It's that seeking of kindness within conflict. Always present, the character of God. I would present to you that a simplistic but good word um, for that in our language is being considerate. You know? is taking into account where that other person's coming from, what they need. You know, when you're being considerate of an old person, you're like looking for what door needs to be open for them and willing to do that, you know? It's a goodness, which leads us to goodness, a depth of goodness, a kindly spirit. So it is like Josh's example is a, is a really good one of, what he said, he talks about in conflict all the time. Like, if you guys are really going at it sometimes, maybe you just need to take a break and go out and get something to eat. I would present that to you as an example of goodness in character. 
you know, that it's not about trying to accomplish that goal or whatever necessarily mechanically in the moment, but recognizing that there needs to be a, a spirit of goodness, a kindly spirit that needs to retake this conversation. So we need to take a break and do something nice together and do that and come back to it so that we remember what we're really trying to do here, that we remember our relationship. <clears throat> Faithfulness. Convinced about God and loyal to him. Now, I would contrast this with loyal to the person, right? A lot of times, as far as friendship goes, we, we uh, frame things like, you know, my friend, I have this expectation of loyalty between my best friends, and that's like the, the greatest good or something. Like, that's one of the values that's communicated to us is loyalness in friendship. But we're not called really in Scripture to be loyal to people like that. We're to be faithful to God, convinced about God, and loyal to Him to the end. And because of that, we're loyal to the people that he asks us to be loyal to. We're conforming to the character of God, and that is far more powerful than a direct faithfulness to a person that is based on whatever history you might have with them. You know, that's something that can be broken, but faithfulness to a God who doesn't change, who tells us to be in a faithful relationship with another person, that's something that is far stronger. We have gentleness. We're almost at the end of the list here. There's nine of them. If you're trying to memorize it, it's always helpful. Nine of them. Gentleness. Pretty much what it sounds like. Not harsh, but gentle in conflict. You know, not seeking to stab, but to direct. You know? And then, last of all, self-control. The linchpin of it all. All these things depend on self-control, right? Self-control is a vulnerable thing in conflict, right? Because there's all sorts of triggers that happen during conflict. There's all sorts of attacks that can be leveled at you during conflict. There's defenses that come up. There's, like I said, selfish tendencies that come up as a reaction to those things, as your triggers are pushed, your buttons are pushed. And so self-control is a vulnerable aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in conflict. Um, because then the rest of them fall apart when we leave that. So, all of these things, um, all of these things that undercut our self-control that can cause us to forget to be controlled, that all causes irrationality and impulsiveness, and it leads to all those things. So anyway, we need to maintain self-control in all of that and make sure that we have an awareness of it. It only takes a moment of lapse, right, to cause some serious harm in a relationship, to say something that is, that you don't even mean that perhaps, perhaps uh, some other influence, like we've talked about before, perhaps some other influence was even trying to get you to dig out of your deeper personality, you know, those things, those ungodly sources from within your personality or whatever, those bitter, that bitterness or whatever that you've learned to control, but they, Satan can highlight that and bring that out. It only takes a moment of lapse to do some harm in a relationship. Thankfully, in Christ, we can fix those things, and he calls us each 
to forgive one another for those lapses too. But regardless, we want to have the full character of God all the time. Speaking of that, we take a look at James chapter 3. There's a good quick verse about that, you know. Um, And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. And that just sort of speaks to the possibility that I just suggested that in those things when you, you know, you're in a conflict and you want to say those things that you don't necessarily mean, it sort of harkens back to what Paul is saying, right, about you want to do what's right, but you inevitably do what's wrong, you know, and that's your sinful nature trying to work itself out that's being encouraged by Satan, by that evil side that we're trying to learn how to suppress and control and deny. So, in that, we want to pay attention to all those things. And then, I don't know about you guys, but I, th- I think that it's a pretty much universal human experience that in conflict, like after we have a conflict with somebody, we sort of push the rewind button, right? And we go through and we're like, oh, I wish I would have said that, or I wish I would have done this differently. And I think that our first tendency, certainly being vulnerable, my I would probably say now, even still, my first tendency is to go back and think about, oh, I should have said this because that would have, like, that would have got the person. That would have, like, cornered them or whatever, you know? That would have proven my point and, and made things right or whatever. Like, that's, that's our first reaction. I should have said this or that. But, I mean, maybe those things are true. Maybe you're fighting for the truth and you missed a point of truth that is in there. But should that be our first reaction? Shouldn't our first analysis of our conflict be, did I present myself in the right character in this conflict, or did I be a person that I don't really want to be, you know? Because you have to have both components. You have to be the right person in that conflict, and then be also presenting the right truth, too. Like, both things are important. In a meeting of the minds, you're both seeking that same truth among believers, but um, we should be rewinding and taking a look at our character, you know. Should have been more loving or more gentle or more controlled, maybe sought more peace in that conflict as our first reaction instead of looking for how we could have better defended ourselves. In Galatians, just before Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he highlights our freedom in Christ. And that's sort of what precedes this, you know? This precedes this discussion about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul's going from talking about the law and how we're, Jesus fulfilled the law and we're free of that. But we're given this new standard to follow. We're given this freedom, and here we go. We have ex- expectations of character and because of that, of follow-through now, right? Instead of all these mechanical rules from the, the Jewish law that they came from. We have expectations of choosing a good investment, of planting a good godly crop, as the metaphor is used in, in very nearby scripture. Uh, Paul's narrative is built upon the commands of the law, but Paul goes beyond that. He goes and he's basing his teaching 
on Jesus's teaching. And Jesus was no stranger to conflict, right? He was constantly getting into it with the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. The, the Sanhedrin was always on his tail, and so was everybody else. Um, but Jesus taught in the midst of conflict, and he gives us further direction as he called us to, to mature in our walk with Christ, in our walk with God. He was Christ. <laughs> so when he, asked, when he was asked to cite the most important part of the law by these people that were generally trying to trap him, in Mark 12, 29, we see him reply, the most important commandment is this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love your Lord, the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. We see an important situation here. Of all the laws, of all the commands, that Jesus could have picked from. There's like 600 and something. These are the couple that he picks. And he asks for things that call for a wholehearted, holistic relationship with God, right? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. A wholehearted and holistic relationship. And this is true in the hardest times too. During conflict, which he was literally in when he was saying this. You know, his command calls for responsibility, but it's in massive freedom as well. If you, let's see here, how do I want to do this? One of those things, a good example of that, so his first deal is citing Deuteronomy when Moses is uh, conveying God's will here. And in Deuteronomy it says, The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk to them. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. Like I said, it's a comprehensive thing where you're putting your entire being your entire existence into this, into following God, into following his character and transmitting that character into your children so that they know it. It's embedded in them from a young, young age and they won't depart from it. In Leviticus 19 is the second one. There's all sorts of commands from God in there, you know, about, you know, don't steal and honor your parents, don't have sex for this or that person and um, offer sacrifices in this way and all these things. But he picks love your neighbor as yourself amongst all of those things. Once again, we see the same theme. Have freedom, but have a high responsibility. Like there's a massive amount of freedom in there, but that freedom calls for responsibility. It calls us to engage God and love him with our whole being. And consequently on the second one, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's to call people, to love people as their own whole being, you know? One of them is love God with your whole being, and the other one is love God, or love people as your whole being, you know? I don't know about you guys, but 
I don't think people generally, when they when they go to love themselves, I don't think they leave much out. You know, you're constantly looking for better ways to love yourself in all this. Um, you know, how can I set it up so that I have a better vacation? How can I, you know, set it up so that I'm more well off for my retirement or whatever phase of life you're in? You know, how can I get the coolest CDs and stuff or a uh, playlist, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyway, there's, there's no holds barred there. So that's the deal with that. It doesn't escape Jesus, no doubt, that this call to love your neighbor also applies to those who are currently trying to trap him, right? These people are trying to, trying to box him into a deal that give him opportunities to say things wrong, and he tells them, hey, equally important to loving your God with everything you have is loving your neighbor. And they can't, but agree with that, because it is in the spirit of Scripture. And all these things are never more important than when we are in conflict, right? There's a lot of, at stake there. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, we see it said, You have heard the law that, you're, that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what we see there is a, a very pointed point in that talking about conflict, that's our opportunity to actually be set apart. That's our opportunity to actually be holy people representing a holy God because that's what's actually different in the world. People in the world are nice to each other when that person is nice to them. They're good to their friends. But it's those people that we're in conflict with that we actually have an opportunity to show that we are from God. We're to love and invest in those who we fight with. That's where some of the hardest work is done in our ministry, and also some of the most rewarding work. God is a God of reconciliation, and he wants us to use our freedom and the fruit that he gave us to plant and harvest a good crop. He gives us, just following the, the metaphor, he gives us seeds, you know, fruit. That's how fruit and, li and livestock, that's how fruit and um, agriculture and all that stuff works, right? Is you have, you know, vegetables and fruit, and they make seeds, and you use those seeds to plant the new things, and it, and it grows up and gives you a new crop. That's, you know, 10, 50, 100 times as much as what you planted, God gave us freedom. God gave us fruit to plant and harvest a good crop. And our seeds come from the fruit of the Spirit. And so we need to treat those things properly in our lives. And following the metaphor further, conflict is the fertile soil for that, right? It's where we see the difference between godly people and people that are from Satan, that are working under the oppression or influence 
of those evil things that they don't know any better but to avoid, that they've been deceived and convinced are the good things to follow, to take care of themselves, to take care of their family, instead of giving up their life for their friends. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always, always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who plan to live, those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we'll, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. We move in the spirit, we invest, we plant, and then when the time to harvest comes, we will see what that yielded. And that's what we're looking for is a good harvest based on that fruit, that replanting of that fruit. In Ephesians chapter 6, where we kind of left off last week, um, is the armor of God, right? We went through all the armor. We kind of left out the sword. The last part of the armor of God is the sword. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is essential to this process, right? It's essential to this conflict as believers to have a godly character, to have a godly conflict to seek what we're supposed to be seeking during this disagreement because we're not disagreeing based on you know what I want or what you want we're supposed to be coming together and talking about and focusing on what is right what is true and those are the most powerful and productive disagreements that we can have that we can have an opportunity to turn something that is ugly in the world and turn it into something that is beautiful and set apart it's something that has, the sword of the spirit is something that can be powerful in this process. More powerful than Excalibur from, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or Anduril from Lord of the Rings. Aragorn carried the sword into battle against the evil Sauron and stuff. It's not death that this sword brings, the sword of the spirit, but it's light, it's life, and it's truth that it brings. And we who have the spirit of God can draw that sword and wield it for God. Power demands respect. It demands skill and control, though. And engaging in conflict with a steady sword is something that we should seek to do. You know, We should seek to have a steady hand with that and to wield it with control and to be able to use that power appropriately. We've talked about how being submissive to God is instrumental in spiritual warfare. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, but be diligent to, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed Accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handing, handling the, sport, the sword of the spirit. We can't conflict and fight about stupid stuff and not be presenting the character of God in that situation because we see from Paul here that it ruins 
any witnesses that might be watching those things, not to mention ourselves, but it ruins the witnesses for that. It shows that Jesus isn't sent from the Father, but rather um, we need to be a person who has nothing to be ashamed of. A person that handles the word of truth accurately. And there's no better tool than scripture for truth, right? There's no better tool than scripture itself that cuts to the heart of the issue of these disagreements that we have, that we run into inevitably. And what I would say about that is that it's not only just for believers that that happens, but truth is truth, right? I mean, God's people should be able to come together around scripture and to be able to sort that out, to be able to meet their minds and figure out what is the best thing to do and come to a, a consensus about that. Or at least seek that and do it in peace and be able to have harmony in that and um, continue that discussion or whatever. But even for non-believers, even with conflict for non-believers, while it may not be helpful to, to levy scriptures at them because it doesn't have the fact that it's scripture doesn't have authority with them, right? But it does have truth to it, and all truth is God's truth. And so knowing these scriptures, knowing that as part of your arsenal, it gives us a real advantage when we're talking about having um, appropriate conflict, when we're understanding that we're called to be a particular person of a particular character in conflict, even with non-believers, that, that we can recall these scriptures in our mind and be able to bring that up in content, not necessarily in citation, like this is from John 17, you know, that, that, whatever, we need to love one another or else it shows that Jesus is not from the Father. You know what I mean? Like, we don't need to cite that, but the truth of these things is true to non-believers too. It's like they understand, you should be able to say, I mean, that's kind of a weird example, that particular scripture, but if you say to them, Hey, non-believer, I have to love my people because that shows that the person that I follow is from God, you know? That shows that Jesus is from God when I love my people the way that Jesus loved us, the way that Jesus served God, you know? It's like it shows a cohesiveness there, and they can't deny the logic of that. That's the beautiful thing about Scripture is that it's logical. It makes sense because— the designer of everything designed the scripture. And so we need to have that as a resource, the word of truth, even in those arguments. In spiritual warfare and conflict like we're talking about, we are tempted to be ungodly. But the sword is our primary weapon to cut to the truth of that. You know, When something comes up and it, it throws up a red flag, can you find a scripture that tells you for certain that that is inappropriate or that it is appropriate to do something else, you know? Maybe there's even a scripture that tells you exactly how to counter that inappropriate thing. Like, that's a massive weapon to have. And it's something that we should be working on, building up our arsenal and being able to maneuver this sword in a way that's effective in combat, in conflict, in spiritual warfare. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Humble yourself before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. And that's what we're talking about here, is submitting to God 
humbling yourself before God, using his direction, using his sword as your weapon to resist the devil. And God will come close to you as well. So we're going to read Luke chapter 4, where we see some of this going on with Jesus. Luke chapter 4, Jesus in a, is in a direct conflict here. It's when he is tempted by Satan himself. So, then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, change this stone into a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Notice he makes a scriptural citation there. Then the devil took him and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give to you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you only worship me. And Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. You notice even on that last one there, Satan uses scripture in that. He tries to play that game. He tries to play that game and once again skew things a little and take things out of context and say, hey, you should do this. But Jesus says, no, no, no. There's other scriptures that say that we can't use that in that way that that is inappropriate before God. I'm not going to test my God by that. That scripture is, the intent of that scripture is something far different than what you're trying to do with that, and I reject it. I reject your interpretation of that, and this is why. Because of this scripture. This is an insidious conflict, even. And so... By insidious, I mean it's, a, it's evil intending to divide and break away Jesus from the Father, you know? And that's what we're talking about here in spiritual warfare, that we're given opportunities. Let's flip it around. At the end of that scripture, what did it say? It said, the devil had finished tempting Jesus. He left him until the next opportunity came. Satan waits for opportunities to tempt us in those things, to wait for an opportunity to divide us in those things. And so we need to be ready for those things and be prepared that there may be something insidious trying to divide us from that, and we need to be prepared to counter that, counterattack with the scriptures, because that is what holds the prime authority in our lives and in reality. So, I would ask then, last week I offered a challenge for everybody to memorize the scripture, right? So, how you doing in that, you know? How, were you able to 
memorize the scripture? Did you choose the scripture to try to memorize? And that's an example, but we need to make a plan, each one of us, right, to progress in our training of this. There's no better tool than scripture, and so we need to train in the sword of the spirit for truth, regardless of if we're interacting with a believer or not. All of those truths are God's truths. So, um, one of the things here is that because, how do I want to say that? Because the sword of the Spirit is powerful and impactful, we need to train for it. And there's a scripture in Hebrews. Somebody was asking me the other day what my favorite scripture was. I think it was, was it Shannon? Was it you? Yeah, it was Shannon. And I said, and I told what my favorite book was. And I was like, I like Hebrews. For whatever reason, I like, I like Hebrews. It presents things differently. And so here's a passage from Hebrews that I like. And this is an example of it. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Scripture cuts deep, you know. And with a sharp weapon, you have to have some skill to handle it. We need to make a plan so that we can handle it well. Because if we don't handle it well or if we don't handle it at all, don't know it, we can trigger people, you know? We can trigger people. We can um, cause harm, and it makes people vulnerable in ways, which is, you know, a good quality, but it's something to be controlled. If handled correctly in conflict, the Scripture holds the burden of the conflict. That's one of the great things about it. It's that it's God, God's position and not ours. It's something that provides us relief in conflict. Knowing and being able to wield the sword of the Spirit is something that is not only effective, but it takes the pressure off of us. Because what you're doing is saying, this is what God says here. What do you think about that? You know, It's not, I think you're dumb because you're doing this. It's, what do you think about this scripture that says that God thinks you're being dumb right now? <laughs> you know? It's like, that's not you saying that to that person. It's an entirely different thing in where it's coming from. It's God's position and not ours. It's two people meeting of the minds and trying to figure out what God's real position is. And that takes the weight off of two people arguing, fighting for that scrap of meat or whatever that they're trying to fight over, that selfish ambition that they're trying to get. It's a meeting of a mind to discern the truth that is not on us to hold that burden, but only on us to submit to the reality of God's position on something. So we need to really work at training with that sword. Are you not confident with that, maybe? I assume that many people are not confident with it. But let me encourage you that there's safety amongst your family of believers, right? We're all called to hold this fruit of the Spirit. And if you fail in that, well, hopefully the person that you're in conflict with will not fail in that. But even if they do fail in that in the moment, say your conflict goes south, we know 
that in Christ there are forgiveness for all those things. We know that we're seeking reconciliation. We know that as the body of Christ, we're supposed to come together and be in harmony. And you have all these people that are willing to work to resolve all of these things. So, feel safe, feel at peace, feel secure in the fruit that we're expected to have and that people are going to support us and make sure that we follow through with. Even if it's not in that moment, but that we fix it, that we're reconciled, that we repent of that, and that we come back together. Because we all know that we all sin. It's no secret. But we also know that we are forgiven and called to move on from that and sin no more and give her another try and do better. We need to expect progress from each other. We need to expect progress from ourselves. To expect fruit, expect a harvest of what we're doing with the fruit that we're given. We need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And just to clarify, when it says strength, it means will. You know, all of our will. Like, we need to be pushing ourselves to do that. It needs to be our intention to do those things. All of our heart, soul, mind, and will. Learning the word of God is loving him. Right? It's how we know God primarily. Like, it's the most detailed way that we can know God. It's about seeing his biography. You know, seeing how he's dealt with everyone, including us. So, God loves us, and we should love him. And we should love each other, especially in conflict. God's resolution to our conflict was a more than one-and-done situation. But... He played the long game, and for those who really understand, God's work is even more profound when you look back over time. Don't be discouraged by continuing conflict amongst ourselves, right? Just because an argument isn't settled right there on day one in the moment in McDonald's society or whatever doesn't mean that it's over, doesn't mean that it's bad, but only be discouraged by conflict which doesn't reflect God's character, which doesn't reflect godly character. We can continue in conflict for a long time. And it's, conflicts have happened um, in the church fathers and stuff for hundreds of years, you know, debating the same thing, arguing, meeting of the minds. But as long as we do that in God's character, we can be encouraged and not be discouraged by a lack of instant resolve. So that's cool. When two believers are both arguing, even for, even for what they think is right, but it's not in God's character, remember John 17, which I mentioned before, that it can be more harmful and good, that when we don't love each other properly, it gives witnesses the right to say that Jesus is not from the Father. Conversely, if we do it properly, it's a hard argument for the fact that the one we follow is from God. So that's what we want. If we're not arguing properly, if we're arguing but not in God's character, God would say something like this, maybe. Whoa, 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 you're defending me right now. I appreciate that, maybe. But you're not representing me. You're defending me, but you're not representing me. How does that work? We need to have all parts of God's fruit being planted so we can harvest the same fruit in others. We need to follow Christ's 
holistic command so that we can be invested with every part of our being, especially in the situation of conflict. And we need to use God's consecrated tool, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in order to make Satan flee and be productive within conflict. With these things, conflict and disagreement can be a super fertile ground for producing a great harvest. So, let's go and discuss. Within your experiences of conflict, which parts of the fruit are you best and worst at? So, in the box of conflict, what are you best and wor worst at in terms of the fruit of the Spirit? Everybody, everybody, you know, who has that memorized, the fruit of the Spirit? There's nine of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. There's no two Gs together. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Nine. How are you at loving with your whole being, both to God and man? But how are you at loving with your whole being, heart, mind, soul, and will, your strength? And speaking of that, how did memorizing that verse go? You know, how did that go at loving God in that way with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength? How can this training continue successfully? in your life, you know? That's, that's assuming that you did it. So how can this training continue successfully in your life where you're continually progressive in building your training for how you can control this sword that is a massively powerful weapon for Christ? Or, why didn't it work? Why didn't that work? Why didn't you respond to that? Why, what can you do differently? Obviously, I think everybody agrees that that's a, a good and worthwhile um, task to put before you. Memorize one scripture this week, because that's what we were talking about, you know? Nobody's going to be like, nah, that's a stupid idea. I hope not. If, if so, that's kind of interesting. Um, but why didn't it work? What can you do differently in order to fix that internally, you know? Like, we can make plans and stuff, and those things are good, but look at the internal, too. Like, what do you think is broken in that, in terms of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your will of that? Okay, let's go discuss.